and we'll get to work. That's great. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day that you've given us where we might live to your praise and glory. Father, we thank you for your word you've given us here in the Bible. We pray, Lord, as we read parts of this book of Isaiah together that you might, as you promised, uh, make your word take root in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts and bear much fruit for your glory. We thank you, Father, for your promise that your word does not return to you empty but always achieves the purpose that you intend for it. And we pray, therefore, that today it might achieve your purpose in our lives. We pray it for Jesus' glory and his name. Amen. Well, I've got a little bit of an outline there on the board behind me that might help you. I suggest you somewhat nervously that the one true living God, the only God who really exists, that is the Christian God, the God and Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, this God has a PR problem. Let me try to convince you of why I think this is the case. See, the Christian scriptures, the Bible, teach us that this God, this one true living God, that he is the very centre of reality. But, of course, the word on the street is that this God, the Christian God, is irrelevant. The Bible teaches us that this God, the one true living God, that he is all-powerful. But the word on the street is that the Christian God is, frankly, impotent and inactive. The Bible teaches us that this God, the one true God, that he is near to each and every one of us. But the word on the street is that this God is distant and maybe not even interested. And even more concerningly, the Christian scriptures, the Bible, teach us that this God in his own being is love. That he's love that he wants what is best for us, that he actually wants what is good for you, that he wants to give you joy and happiness, that he wants to save you for those reasons, but also for the sake of his own glory, that he wants to give you life as it is meant to be lived. That's what the Bible teaches, but the word on the street is that this God is a killjoy, that he is oppressive, and that he wants to suck the life out of you. See, the one true living God, the God of the Bible, he has a big PR problem. So what I want to do today, by looking at this section of the book of Isaiah, is cut through the distortive spin in the word on the street, and actually come again to what the Christian scriptures teach as the truth. Let's look again at the truth, and then I'm going to ask the question, what is this God going to do about this PR problem? What's his plan? Because that's a pretty big problem. So those are the two things we're going to do today. So I hope you've got your Bible there, or at least you can look on with the person next to you, because that's really going to be helpful. We're going to look at uh, several sections in this uh, last part of the book of Isaiah as we explore this particular theme of salvation coming to the very ends of the earth. We're going to start with Isaiah chapter 45. You might like to turn that up. 
The first truth that we want to re-establish, reacquaint ourselves with here from the Christian Scriptures is of this God's singularity. This God's singularity. I'm looking at Isaiah chapter 45 and I'm starting at verse 18. Let's hear what he has to say. Isaiah 45, 18. For this is what the Lord says. There he is, the one true living God. That's his name, Lord Yahweh. This is what he says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord, and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Two things he says here. First of all, he says, I am the only God. The only God, he says there. Uh, You'll notice, he says, I am the one who created everything, verse 18. He who created the heavens. He who fashioned and made the earth. He made everything. There's an implication that flows from that. If he made everything, then that means he is the only true God. Because anything else you worship was made by him. So, a couple of weeks ago I drew this little diagram. Here is everything that is created. Here is everything that is created. Here is the one who created everything, the creator. Here are the things that we treat as gods. Here are the things that we treat as not gods. What is the one true living God? Yahweh saying at this point, he's saying, I alone am here. I am the only one who fits in this God box. Anything that you are actually treating as a God, whether that be some other religion, whether it be your family, whether it be your career, whether it be your comfort, whether it be money, whatever it else is that actually is functioning as a God in your life, that actually isn't in the God box, even if you treat it that way. It actually belongs in the not-God box. All the idols... All the, we might call them pseudo-gods, they all belong here in the not-God box. Because they are created things. And they've been created by this one alone, who is the one who created everything else. So he's saying, I alone am God because I alone created all things. But there's a further implication. If this God created all things, then that means he also created you. No matter what gods you might choose to worship, the claim here is that this God made you. Because he made all the inhabitants of the earth. So what that means actually is he is your God. Whether you Acknowledge that or not, because he's the only God that there really is. Even if you're worshipping other things, you're following some other faith, you're you're just worshipping sort of secular materialism, whatever it is you're worshipping, he actually is your God, whether you acknowledge or not, because he's the only God that there is. It puts him in a particular relationship with you, creator, 
to creation, to creature. So that's the first thing he's saying here. I am the only God. But the second thing he's saying in this chapter, let's move on. Let's move to verse 20 of chapter 45. Verse 20. Hear what he has to say a bit more. The Lord says, Gather together and come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Saviour. There is none but me. You notice twice there in those two verses we get the idea of salvation. Who is the one who can save? Because the thing that God is saying here, this one true living God, he's saying there's no other God and there is no other Saviour. That's the second thing. There is no other Saviour other than this God. Now, the context of this chapter, if you uh, later go back and look at the beginning of chapter 45, he's talking about the salvation that he is going to procure, he's going to secure for his people Israel when they go into exile. They're going to go into exile at the hand of the Babylonians and he's saying at the beginning of this chapter, look, I am going to save you, I'm going to bring you out of exile, I'm going to raise up a particular dude whose name is Cyrus. He's going to come and and basically... uh, win freedom for you, my people. And what he's saying is, I'm telling you this way, way, way before it happens, even to the point of naming this particular ruler, Cyrus. He said, I'm telling you this all this heaps before so that you can know that I'm the only God and know that there is no saviour other than me. So that's what's going on here in this chapter. So here's these two things that we've got from this chapter so far in terms of God's singularity. There is no other God but him. And there is no other saviour but him. Now, our world, the word on the street, really doesn't like that message. Because that message is anti-polytheism and it's (coughs) anti-pluralism. And we're into polytheism as our society. We're into pluralism. That is polytheism, the belief that there's many gods. We like our gods in our society. We like that I can... I don't call it worshipping materialism, but I live my life in the pursuit of the holy dollar. We, we like that. I, I don't want to let go of that. I want to keep my gods. I want to keep my other religious faiths. I don't want to let go of them. They're part of my culture or they're part of my heritage or whatever you like to say. So this is actually a very confronting message, isn't it? There's no other real God than me. It's anti-polytheism. That's also anti-pluralism. Pluralism is the idea that there are many roads to salvation. Many roads to salvation. Well, here God's saying, no, there's only one, one road to salvation. There's only one, one saviour, and that's me. It's a very confronting message. Now, I know this is a confronting message for our world, and I wonder if, because I can see how confronting it is, for the people I want to share it with, I wonder if that's why, actually, I sometimes don't share it. I know that this message is going to be difficult for people to accept. See, to accept that message, that there's only one God, that there's only one Saviour, to accept that you've got to have a... Well, you've got to have a fair degree of humility, haven't you? Because you've got to say, OK, well, I'm going to let go of what I thought was truth and just submit to what you, you say is true. It means I've got to have... I've got to repent, actually. I've got to turn away from the gods that I was following and whatever they were and 
and now I've got to live with you as my God. That requires repentance. So this message to actually accept it is going to require humility and repentance and they're hard things and not things that people often want to do. And So maybe I don't want to say too much about it because I just know that it's going to be not necessarily positively received. So out of fear, fear of the challenge that this message actually represents to the life of people leading, out of fear of sort of the uncomfortable moment when, yeah, I've got to say, actually, yeah, I, I really think that your religious faith is not leading to truth and not leading to salvation. The fear of the uncomfortableness that introduces it. Is it because of God's singularity that I'm actually hesitant to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ? Because I think it often is. I don't know if you're like me. Well, if you are like me, then I just think this is worth reflecting on. In the face of all your fears, in the face of all your concerns about making a relationship uncomfortable, Lord, do you really think, do you really believe this truth that we've just read? Do you really believe that there is only one God? and that there is only one saviour. Or, or pragmatically, are you a polytheist? And are you a pluralist? No, I know, if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you will probably say, no, no, I believe there's one God and one saviour, but practically, when it comes to actually talking to other people, practically, are you a polytheist? You'll let people worship other gods that really you know are not gods. And are you practically a pluralist. You'll let people pursue other roads to salvation which you actually know won't lead to salvation. Or will you really believe this truth? That's the question I think is posed for us as we confront God and his word and what he claims about himself today. Well, uh, unfortunately, it would be nice to sort of almost stop there, but the, the chapter ramps it up a bit more. So turn with me for a moment, uh, keep going in this chapter, and actually look at verse 23 to 25. And see how this is ramped up a little bit more. Verse 23, the Lord continues to speak. He says, By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me every knee will bow. By me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. So this ramps it up because what, what the Lord says here is, not only am I the only God and, and am I the only Saviour, but there is actually a day of accountability when everyone will actually answer to me for who they have worshipped and what way of salvation they have pursued and have they turned to me or have they raged against me? There's a day of accountability. And the New Testament actually reflects on verse 23. There's that phrase there, before me every knee will bow and every tongue will swear. The New Testament, in reflecting on that particular verse in Romans chapter 14, verses 10 to 12, Romans chapter 14, verse 10 to 12, the Apostle Paul quotes that verse in Isaiah 45 and he says this. He then says, 
we will all give an account of ourselves to God. That's the application of that truth. That's what that means. We will all give an account of ourselves to God. And the stakes are very high, aren't they? Because what does it say there for those who have raged against him? They will come to him, verse 24, and be put to shame. See, the stakes are high here. What God are you worshipping? How do you think your salvation will come about? The stakes are high. And also, the need is critical. The need is critical. Let me uh, try to make this concrete for you for a moment. The University of Sydney has just released, uh, in the last couple of weeks, the statistics for how many students are enrolled at Sydney Uni this year. I don't know why it took till August to find out how many students are actually enrolled here. I made no comment about this wonderful university's administration. But on the website, you can now find, this is how many students were enrolled at the end of March. Um, now, what the answer is, how many... Now, I'm going to just ignore part-time students. I love part-time students. But let's just ignore part-time students, right? Let's just think about full-time students. Full-time students. How many at this university this year? The answer is three, sorry, 37,939 full-time students. So, basically, just a few short of 38,000 full-time students. Uh, how does that break down? Well, uh, according to my stats here, 29,000 full-time undergraduates and 9,000 full-time postgraduates. Okay? That's a lot of students who are here at this university. How many of those students do you reckon are disciples of Jesus Christ? Well, I reckon it's probably no more than 5%. But let's be incredibly generous and optimistic and say, let's say it was 10%. Say 10% of the university were actually disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. That would still leave, by my humble calculations, 34,000 full-time students who are not disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what, what Isaiah 45 truth means is that they will be held accountable by the one true living God for how they've lived their life and because they have raged against him, whether actively or passively, they will be put to shame. 34,000 students studying here this week. I mean, that's just massive, isn't it? You know what they would take? Like, in order to get that message out to them, uh, to give you some sort of handle on how big a number that is, if we took, say, Eastern Avenue, which is one of the biggest lecture theatres uh, on the uni, it takes you can fit 500 in, right? If you pack it, you've got 500 seats. If we've got to reach 34,000 full-time students, that means filling that lecture theatre 68 times. That means we line up the 34,000 students all the way up and down Eastern Avenue, and we say, come in, first 500... Fill up every seat. And we take an hour to proclaim the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and answer their questions and do all that. We take, take an hour or 50 minutes and then we, okay, out you go, exit down here left and bring in the next 500. We do it again. We have to do it 68 hours in a row. That's like working 24-7. You're talking nearly three days 
just to get the message out onto our campus. It's a massive task, isn't it? The stakes are incredibly high and the need is incredibly great. And that's just doing Sydney Uni. God's singularity and some of its implications. Now, the difficulty is, in this chapter of Isaiah 45, I've actually skipped a verse, which maybe you noticed. I actually skipped the verse that is at the very heart of the chapter. So that was maybe a little bit distortive of me. But let's now turn to that. What verse did I skip? Anyone notice? Verse 22. Yeah, what is verse 22 here? And here you come to God's heart. Here's God's heart, verse 22. What does the Lord say? What does this one true living God say? In the light of this truth, that there are so many who are raging against him. You might think, he says, you know what? You've raged against me. That's it, you know? Major bed lion. That is not the heart of the one true living God. Whatever the word on the street is, that is not the heart of the one true living God. The God who the scriptures reveal is love. This is the heart of God. Verse 22. The Lord then says, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. Don't trust in these other things that will never save you. Trust in me and... No matter how you've raged against me, turn to me and be saved. Wherever you are, to the very ends of the earth, to all his creatures. That's the Lord's heart. Um, You can see it even, uh, I guess it's filled out for you, if you turn on to chapter 55, jump forward to chapter 55, and you'll see here the Lord's invitation. Listen to what he says. 55 verse 1. Come. All you who are thirsty, come to the waters. Have you ever been really thirsty? I mean, really thirsty? I mean, these days, look, I can see umpteen bottles of water sitting on the desk here. We're hardly ever thirsty. I remember going hiking with my son, and a mate and some of their sons. And uh, we went hiking in the Blue Mountains. It was only overnight. We were sort of hiking for two days, but there was no running water where we were going. We had to carry our own water with us. Yes. And so by the time we got to sort of the middle of the second day and we're down to sort of the last bit of water, you know, we were pretty thirsty. And before we did the last climb out of the, a fairly big climb out of the valley, we, we drained the last of our water. And then we did this massive climb in the sort of midday sun. Because we knew at the top, that was where we parked the car, we knew there was going to be water there, right? <laughs> so we sort of, if someone had stolen the car... Okay, I don't know, we'd be sucking dew off leaves. I don't know what you do in those situations. I don't know. But, but, you know. And I tell you, we got to the top. We were, we were pretty thirsty and we hadn't really drunk a lot for a long time. So the, this is how the Lord talks about it. He says, come to me, all you who are thirsty. Come to me, you who are thirsty. Come to the waters. You who have no money, come by me. You ever come to uni and you realise you've got no money, and you live the whole day with no food, oh, I mean, you survive a whole, what, six hours with nothing to eat? It's dreadful, isn't it? I mean, how ridiculous. We live in such luxury, right? But you know what it's like when you've got no money, and you're hungry, and you know what the Lord says? You've got no money. Come. Come buy and eat. Without money. Without cost. Buy wine and milk. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labour on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. Eat what is good. You will delight in the richest affair. 
even though you've got nothing. This is the heart of our God. And then he says, Give ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. What's on offer here is life. That's what he's offering. Salvation, life. That's why it's great that uh, over the next couple of weeks that he was trying to reach out with the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to this campus in this sort of outreach. It's called This Is Life, as you can see there on the website. right? Because what's the answer to the life that people really need? It's found, according to this verse, in heeding, hearing the Word of God. That's what brings you life. Because that Word of God is the message of life and salvation that's found uniquely in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the heart of our God. He says, turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. And you can see there as you run down in this, uh, this chapter, chapter 55, you get down to verse 6 and 7, and he says things like, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. He, the world on the street says he's distant. No, he's, he's near. Call on him. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the unrighteous their thoughts. Let them turn to the Lord. He will have mercy on them to our God, but he will freely pardon. It doesn't matter how you've raged against him, lived your life against him. He will freely pardon you. There's forgiveness and mercy and grace lavished on people in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the heart of our God. So what? draw this picture together. What do you see? The need is enormous. The stakes are incredibly high. The solution is found in one place only, one person only. And what is offered there is unsurpassed. Now, I know absolutely nothing nothing about marketing, right? But I, just as you reflect on that, right, you've got a huge need, a huge market. The stakes are really high. People really need this. It's found in only one place and what it gives you is amazing. I'm thinking, that's got to be a marketer's dream, right? How easy would that be to market? So if that's the truth that we're seeing here from God's Word, how come our God has a marketing, uh, like a PR problem? How come, if that's the truth, there's all this distorted word on the street? What, God, what is God's solution to this PR disaster? How's he going to get the truth out there? Because it sounds pretty good. So turn with me, uh, then, please, to uh, Isaiah 66. Isaiah 66. And you'll see here God's method, God's means, God's mission, God's solution to the PR problem. Uh, one of the just focus in toward, right towards the end of the book of Isaiah here, right? Verse 18. Verse 18 of 66. The Lord says, And I, because of what they have planned and done, am about to come and gather the people of all nations and languages, and they will come and see my glory. Okay, who, who's doing the work here? Who's going to draw people in? Who's going to solve the PR problem? According to that verse. Who's doing the work? The Lord is. I will come and I will gather. Now, that's a very interesting picture. Last week I tried to uh, represent a whole lot of uh, what we found about the city of God in uh, this end part of Isaiah. 
What you're seeing here, this is the city of Jerusalem on Mount Zion. What you're seeing here in that verse is the Lord saying, I am going to draw in... I don't really know how to draw that. Now I think about it. Here's the Lord. The Lord is going to draw in himself people from all nations. And that's a fairly standard picture in the Old Testament for how this message gets out. That is, the nations of the world will stream into the city of Jerusalem where they will worship God. That's a fairly standard picture in the Old Testament. As I read on though these next couple of verses, you get a new insight into how this is going to happen. Now we should expect that because in the Bible we know it's progressive revelation. So as you go on in the Bible, you get more clarity in what that will actually look like. Right? And these next couple of verses, you get an insight that you don't really get almost anywhere else in the Old Testament. Okay? Verse 19. The Lord says, I will set a sign among them, and I will send some of those who survive to the nations, to Tarshish, to the Libyans and Lydians, famous as archers. I have no idea why that is there. <laughs> except that it's true. Because it's in God's word. <laughs> to Tubal and Greece and to the distant islands that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. They will proclaim my glory among the nations and they will bring all your people from all the nations to my holy mountain in Jerusalem as an offering to the Lord on horses, in chariots and wagons and on mules and camels, says the Lord. They will bring them as the Israelites bring their grain offerings to the temple of the Lord in ceremonially clean vessels. And I will select some of them also to be priests and Levites, says the Lord. What's the new information you get here? It's that actually the way that the Lord is going to gather people from all the nations into Jerusalem is he's actually going to send out some who are left over in the land from Israel, that is remnant Israel. God's people. He's going to send out some of his people and they are going to draw in, bring in with them, the nations. That is a new piece of information in terms of Old Testament theology. You're getting a greater insight in how the Lord's going to do it. He's going to do it actually by sending people out. My favourite piece of high school science equipment was, you might be surprised, not the Bunsen burner. I mean, it has flames. It's pretty cool. It was the centrifuge, which we didn't get to use very often. And this story will probably tell you why. Um, that is the centrifuge. It was sort of made of metal and you put it in like on the bench and you put in your little test tubes into the four arms of it. It's got sort of the mixture in there. And the beauty of the centrifuge is it has a handle a crack, and you just, you just, as a 15 year old boy, you know, you tend to just, <laughs> and you go as fast as you possibly can, thinking in your 15 year old sort of senses of delusions of grandeur that if I turn that fast enough, I can break this machine, <laughs> and those tissues will fly out. Because the whole idea of the centrifuge, as you turn it, it flings out, right? That's, that's the centrifugal motion. The opposite of centrifugal is centripetal, where things just go in. See, for most of the Old Testament, it looks like that God's mission is centripetal. But at this particular point, you realise, no, it's actually centrifugal. God is going to send out in order to draw in. That's new. Now, 
That then makes sense to you, right? Because then as you read on as a Christian in the Scriptures, you get more clarity still. What is the reality of what this looks like then? This sending out of God's people to bring in the nations. What does that look like? Well, the New Testament tells you, right? It tells you all sorts of things. We saw some of this last week, didn't we? We realised that the Jerusalem that is in chapters 65 and 66... That is not actually the physical city of Jerusalem. We learned that there's two Jerusalems. There's the physical Jerusalem, which is no like the city of Jerusalem, no longer at the centre of God's plans for salvation for the world. And there is the heavenly Jerusalem. That is a way of talking about the time when, when God is going to fulfil all of his purposes for his people and for his whole creation. So we know that that city of Jerusalem is not a physical city in the sense that we understand the physical city of Jerusalem. It's it's the great new creation that God is planning, right? We know that. But we know lots else too. In Isaiah, particularly in verse, uh, chapter 49, we learn that key to this mission is a, an enigmatic figure called the servant. And uh, the Lord says of this servant, he says, it's too small a thing that you will be a saviour for my people Israel. I'm going to make you a light to the nations, to the Gentiles, so that my salvation might reach the ends of the earth. Critical to this mission is this work of the servant. Now, we haven't had time to explore it today. When we come back to Isaiah at the end of the semester, we're going to spend a whole week looking at this idea of the servant. The New Testament makes clear that servant who's critical to this is Jesus Christ. When Jesus was a little baby, Simeon held him in the temple and said, said here is the one who will be the light to the nations. Right? Identify himself. Jesus himself says, I am the light of the world. Right? So, critical, we know, to the reality of this vision is the pro- proclamation of Jesus. And uh, two references I'll leave you to chase up later, but you might like to jot them down. One is uh, Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. Revelation 22, 17. Because you'll see there that the, the same invitation that was talked about here in Isaiah, come, you who are thirsty, you come and drink. That is repeated in Revelation chapter 22, the very end of the Bible. The same invitation is going out, but now it is... God's people and the Spirit who make that appeal. Second reference you might like to jot down, Romans chapter 15, verse 16. Romans 15, verse 16. What do you see there? You'll see that Paul talks about his own mission to all the earth. And what he says there is that as I am going out and doing this, I am bringing the Gentiles in as an acceptable offering to God. He uses the language of Isaiah 66 to talk about his own mission. What I'm saying is the reality of this vision is fulfilled as throughout Christian history the message about Jesus has gone out through all the earth. That is the fulfilment of this vision. As people are called to put their faith in Jesus Christ. That is the fulfilment of this vision. So, What do we make of all this? The need is huge. The stakes are high. The answer is found in one place. What is offered there is amazing. And what is the means? The means is the proclamation of the people of God of this Saviour. The means is you. God is not going to do it independently of you. We can't just sit here and hope that God's going to ride it across the sky. He's doing it 
through his people. He is sending out his people with this message of Jesus to bring them in. So, how does it, where does this land for us? We have an amazing opportunity, don't we, the next couple of weeks to proclaim Jesus to this university. So, in terms of making this really concrete for you, I've got four B's and a P. Four B's and a P. B1. Buy a hoodie. <laughs> you think I'm joking. I, this is incredibly significant. That is, it is the easiest thing in the world to wear one of the mission <coughs> garments and just wear it every single day for the next three weeks. You go, I can't wear it every single day. My fashion sense. I don't care about your fashion sense. <laughs> You'll say, but it'll smell. Okay. That is why God created, uh, gave human beings the engineering to create washing machines and dryers. So you can just quick turn around. And you say, oh, but the garment will fall apart after three weeks. Yes. Yes. Good. Exactly. I don't care if you never ever wear it again. Do you care? It's for these three weeks. Wear it every single day. It's the easiest, the easiest sort of, you know, help to God's mission you'll ever do. Just wear it. Pray to provoke conversation. Second B. Be at the events. This, this uh, outreach is very simple. You've just got to remember, 12 till 2 every day. That's when it's on. 12 till 2 every day. Now, you say, well, I'm an art student. I only come in one and three quarter days a week. <laughs> I'm saying for the next three weeks, think about coming in every day. I mean it. Come, think about coming in every single day. Why? Because I tell you, even if none of your friends are here, you can help set out chairs, you can help pack up chairs, you can sit next to the visitors who come to the meetings. You'll know who the visitors are because they're not wearing a hoodie. <laughs> right? There is so many opportunities we've got to think about. Be at the meetings. Now, yes, I'm not saying be irresponsible in all your other responsibilities. No, you've still got to love your family, you've still got to you know, be responsible to church, but this is a singular opportunity over the next week. Think about how you can make it possible. Okay? Third B, remember the big picture, right? <laughs> remember the big picture. This is God's work. He is the missioner. He is the one who's going to draw in the nations. We pray he do it through us as we pray in Christ. Fourth B, the fourth B, is be bold. Be bold. Acts 4. Christians there pray that God would fill them with their Holy Spirit so they might proclaim the name of Jesus boldly. Right? Be a little bit bold. If you wear the hoodie and you go to every single event, your friends will start saying, what the heck are you doing? Don't say, oh, it's just a new thing. Say, we're just running this fantastic, this fantastic event. You should come along. It'd be great if you came along. It'd be fun. I come. You'll learn something. Now, just just be a little bit bold. Invite them along. Give them one of the Bibles. Just offer to read it with them. I just be a little bit bold. Final thing is a P, not a B, because I want it to stand out. P. What do you think that is? Pray. Pray. I've seen lots of great missions. Lots of great missions with great advertising, great clothing, great speakers. The thing that makes a difference is the boldness of God's people and the prayers of God's people. So let's commit to that.